Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Hey, Justin. Hey, sister. How's it going? Good. Good. You had a good day so far? Yeah. What's it been like? Um, You know, it's a little bit, uh, you know, unusual still, but, you know, I, I get working into a routine. I wake up uh, and I wash my hands and then I brush my teeth. And then I wash my hands and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I take a shower and then I wash my hands, which that actually, that one feels. Maybe excessive. That one feels Maybe a excessive. little excessive yeah. there. Why? So a lot of hand washing, yeah. I would say. I like it. I don't know why I never tried it before, honestly, because I'm, I'm, I kind of find it soothing. You moisturizing in there? Oh, you know me. You're going to wash your hands a lot. You got to moisturize. I can't keep, well, it's hard because I can't, I'm not allowed to keep moisturizer next to the bed anymore like I used to for my dry cracked hands because you make fun of me for having moisturizer next to the bed and you say it's for um, uh, ill use. I will say no more than that. I, I do not say ill use. That is not, I yes, would not call very, that ill use. I would just say that that's a private time. It's not though. It's just for my dry cracked hands and you know that it's been <laughs> 15 years but there's no shaming here. It's not ill use. You just, do. It's You're shaming. Up. So they're shaming no, upstairs. It's private time. I say. I say maybe put it inside your nightstand. If but it's, it's not. I'm not a private time thing. It's just for my dry cracked hands. But it looks like a private time thing. Okay. Well. Okay. Justin, do you know why we know how important washing our hands is? No, do you know who I, told us that? It feels right. It feels good. I will say. It does feel good. It is weird to think there was a time when we didn't because. It feels so right. I think it would be fun to be one of the first people who's like, well, this is fun. This is nice. This is like a little bath for my hands. I get it. This is hilarious. Well, that was not the impetus behind our... How did, that must have been awkward, though, for them to put their hands, like turn on the shower and then put their hands into the shower uh, to, to wash them. Because they you're, why would they have sinks? You're you know? a, <laughs> I, guess, I mean, you, the, we washed other things. Well, of course, but we used the bathtub for that. We would have the help bring in hot buckets of water, no, warmed no. over the fire, and then we would take a bath. And Not this like, is like dishes a, and stuff. Dish. We wash dishes. Yeah. Well, you got to get the food particles. There were things like there's been the dirt river. and grime that river. we could see for a long time. Yeah, you wash them in the before river before we knew that there was also stuff we couldn't see mm, that's on true. there. That's true. That's a fair point. Anyway, I want to tell you about the guy who is responsible for all the hand washing. I mean, indirectly, I guess. I mean, he's he didn't warn us about 
coronavirus necessarily no. or at all. I shouldn't say necessarily. He did not. But Thanks for the heads up, whoever we're talking about. <laughs> Ignaz Simmelweis is who I want to talk about. We have mentioned him on the Simmelweis, show. Yeah, I figured that was coming. Mm-hmm. Get it out of your system. You, you said I could have one, so that I burned out early. All right. I We have mentioned him on the show before. And I actually, in my head, we'd done an episode completely devoted to him. And then uh, as we were, he was the Google Doodle recently mm. with Simmelweis. And so I started thinking, did we actually, or did I just, do I just feel like I know him that well? Do I just feel a kinship with him? Sure. And I assumed I had. And I looked back and we have not devoted an episode to this very important uh, historical, medical, medical, historical, whichever you prefer, figure so I wanted to like tell his story. Okay. I think we all know that he's, well, if you listen to the show, you probably know he's the reason we wash our hands. But how exactly did he go about figuring that out and who was he? And then I think it's interesting to talk about why it didn't catch on then. Because this is not the story of when people first started washing their hands to prevent infection. It is the story of when people almost started washing their hands to prevent infection, but then didn't, but then did later. Yeah. And, uh, and so I thought that would be worth exploring a little bit further. Let's dive in. So Semmelweis was born in 1818 in Hungary. He was the fifth of 10 kids, and he initially set out on a course to, I know you always shake your head when we talk about people who have lots of kids Just because... Like... You were very done at two. I was That's very done rough. at two. I shouldn't blame it on you. We Two is all we can handle. Yeah. If you can handle more than that, God more power that. to you. Yeah. Uh, he started out studying law, but then for some reason he decided after a year, medicine's better. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't say I blame him. There we go. Here she goes. She always has to tear me down. <laughs> you don't. You're not a lawyer. <laughs> as much a lawyer as I am a doctor. No, law's great, but he preferred medicine, so uh, he... I also have a free membership to Rocket Lawyer, I will let you know, so... What is that? It's like a online, you know, where they, like, prepare legal documents for you. I made a bet with our friend Michael Beck, uh, and uh, it was a wager, and we needed a legal document and for, that's the, how you, for the bet. Yeah. Right. Okay. I gotcha. Yeah, free account. Okay, because the way you said it, I thought you meant you would you could become a lawyer very quickly through something called Rocket Lawyer, and I no. thought <laughs> that does not seem <laughs> that seems a little sketchy. That is <laughs> that how I not, would do it, but <laughs> this, this does not feel right. Yeah. So he could not find. He initially sought an appointment in internal medicine. Uh, he couldn't find one, so he decided to switch to obstetrics and study that instead. And he rose to a position that was essentially chief resident. That was basically, he was like first assistant, um, which would be akin to the position we we now call like first resident, which, or chief resident, which having been a chief resident, I would define as having to do a lot of extra work and having a lot of extra responsibility and in return getting no money yeah. <laughs> for it. Looks great. <laughs> or no your- more money than anyone else. Um, Looks great on your sieve, though, on your CV. That's true. Your curriculum verite, as you'll mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I don't know. I was just, I stayed where I train, and I don't think it made a difference. So sometimes I worry I got tricked into, like, you got voted chief resident. Yay. Hooray. You get to do all this extra work. Yay. Yeah. 
I don't know. Anyway, it's an honor. It's I'm not. It's an honor. It was a great honor That's for all like you chief residents out there. It's a the wonderful ch- thing. The main resident in Animal Crossing, because you have to go around and build everybody's house and pay a bunch of bells for the bridges and stuff. And while, uh, meanwhile, uh, 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 Sparrow and and Diva and Charlie all get to live there and just enjoy their lives. And I'm mm-hmm. making the big decisions without you know anything to show for it that's right that's it's just like that exactly you needed like that. you needed a co-chief resident like i had like adrian adrian was she loved all the scheduling she's a very leslie nope loved mm. all the scheduling stuff and i just got to like comfort people and like talk them through the hard times i was the inspirational leader sure <laughs> not the organizational leader more of a, <laughs> a lead from the front go get them y'all kind of leader i was I'm patting at, your back mm-hmm. i was good at giving speeches got it so at the at the time that Simmelweis was practicing Obstetrics was really a shifting field. It was really a, a newer field in the sense, like, as a medicinal specialty, as a medical specialty, not medicinal, medical, because it had previously been dominated by midwives, right? It, mm-hmm. That's who delivered babies for the most part. Uh, surgeons were always somewhat affiliated with obstetrics because if problems were encountered, then you needed a surgeon to help solve them. Uh, but they weren't there traditionally for a standard uncomplicated delivery uh but in this time period we began to see delivery shift to the hospital Mm -hmm. slowly and under the care of surgeons who eventually became obstetricians some of them um and that because as you enter the realm of doctors your care gets taken over by doctors and eventually as we would see midwives were kind of forced out of the at least in this country forced out of that equation um unfortunately because there's certainly a place for everybody in the field of obstetrics midwives and doctors and nurses and doulas and everyone but at the time it was really kind of a struggle where it was being taken over slowly by the field of obstetrics as a medical specialty and mainly by male physicians because most physicians were male and less and less by midwives. Uh, Simmelweis was one of these early obstetricians and he worked at the first obstetrical clinic at Vienna General Hospital. There was also a second obstetrical clinic. But we don't talk about that. Because otherwise, why would there have been a first, I guess? Uh, And these patients uh or these clinics were basically free Hmm. patients could come it was a way to encourage honestly at the time these clinics were developed throughout europe as a way to encourage patients to come there and deliver and provide some way to provide care for the child Mm -hmm. and and the pregnant person uh because so many people would get into a situation where they were maybe having a child out of wedlock or didn't have the means to support them and it would result in disastrous outcomes for both the pregnant person and the and the child and so these clinics were free and Mm. you could come you could deliver you could get care and get access to services that Mm -hmm. way so uh the two clinics were run by different groups the first obstetrical clinic was run by doctors and doctors in training and students and the second obstetrical clinic was run by midwives and midwives in training and whatnot. Um, and that was kind of the deal. If you were going to deliver at one of these clinics, it was all free. But in return, they were still in training. Sure. You know, the, these were still people who were not practicing necessarily on their own yet. So that was kind of the trade off. Um, soon after starting there, Semmelweis began to notice a difference between the two clinics. Uh 
Specifically, he noticed a difference in the rate of something called purple fever. Purple fever. It sounds bad. Yes. Now, purple refers to the time period after birth, the postpartum period. Oh, okay. Okay. So, a fever that's occurring in people who have just given birth. Uh, it was a common... In the babies or in the, the... In the pregnant person. Okay. The person who has just delivered, not in the baby. Uh, and this was a common scourge back then. Basically, after delivery, because people didn't quite understand what was happening yet, the patient would seem okay for maybe a couple days, and then they would begin to develop very high fevers and chills. Most of them had a lot of uh, stomach pain, abdominal pain. They could have some vaginal discharge. There were a variety of symptoms. There were different ways it could manifest. But one way or another, it was seen as a really bad sign because many of the patients who developed this complication would die. Mm. Mm. So it was definitely something that you wanted to avoid. Is it? Is it? As they understood it at that time, was this a symptom of something or was it like this is the... I guess they wouldn't have any idea, right? I mean, the, at this point in history, so a lot of people still were believing in the miasma form of disease. Sure, bad air. Yeah, bad air somehow caused sickness. And they still, there were many who still clung to this kind of humoral understanding of medicine that each specific illness had to do with a very individual imbalance within you. Mm. So the idea that everyone who develops this same thing has the same problem, like that the same etiology is responsible, actually was kind of revolutionary, as opposed to the idea that, well, you got sick because of this, this, and this, and it looked like that. You may have looked the same, but actually the reason you got sick was this, this, and this. Right. And it could be anything from like, well... You got very emotional, so obviously you developed purple fever, or you uh, were wearing a dirty dress, so you did, or you had some constipation, so you mm -hmm. did. I mean, it could like it was weird how you could see the same sort of end result and come up with well, but there's why. yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, and this was something that has been this phenomenon had been observed all the way back to Hippocrates. The idea that after delivery was a vulnerable time period for the patient and that there was some sort of sickness that could follow sometimes that was that was very bad. Um, it was not called purple fever, also childbed fever was the other name for it until the 1800s, really. And it's it's interesting because you can see this kind of perfect storm develop. So we have patients moving into the hospitals and clinics slowly like out of home births and into medical facilities to give mm -hmm. birth at the same time we see people um being delivered by doctors and students of medicine as opposed to midwives and at this exact same time we're beginning to understand the value of autopsy as a tool to be used to understand not just anatomy but like pathology and disease process and like what what was responsible for this person's death? Can I now understand it better and treat it and prevent it? All of this was happening around this same period of time, which is going to create this perfect storm mm. that that we see. Um, but nobody could, except Semmelweis was looking. And he began to investigate, why does the first clinic have a rate of purple fever anywhere from 10 to sometimes 18% of patients? So God. a pretty high rate. Right, yeah. Where the second clinic had a rate of around 4%, sometimes even lower. So a significant difference between these two clinics. And this was, this was very well known um, by patients. So the way that they would admit 
pregnant people who were about to deliver to the two clinics is they've just alternated, right? They'd go one place and then when the ambulance was called, they'd go to the other place back and forth. It was so well known around Vienna, this difference between these two clinics that patients would beg, please take me to second clinic. Don't take me to first clinic. Cause they mm. knew about how many more pa patients died there. Um, they actually, sometimes if they thought they would be taken to first clinic, that it was, there was nothing they could do and they were going to be taken there. They would give birth in the street instead, which was something Semmelweis noticed that even these patients who were having these street births mm -hmm. tended to fare better on average than the patients at first clinic. Uh, so he really wanted to know what what is happening? What what are the midwives doing that the doctors aren't or what are the doctors doing that the midwives aren't? What is happening between these two clinics? So he began to investigate. The first thing he started doing was uh, observing the laboring process and the birthing process between the two facilities. And a, a one obvious difference is that the midwives tended to place the patient on their side when they gave birth at this point, whereas the doctors tended to place the patient on their back. Right. And so he thought, well, maybe we need to switch over at first clinic to only giving birth on our sides. So he switched it around so that all the doctors and students were delivering patients on their sides. This did not help. This did not change anything. So then he thought, well, because again, we did not understand what caused disease well. He began to think that perhaps this condition was born of fear and that these patients were becoming so afraid that they got a fever and got sick. Mm -hmm. So and, and the main reason that he thought this fear was manifesting was because that when one would become sick and die... They would just routinely have a priest walk through the unit ringing a bell to, you know, say a prayer for the rest of the patients in the unit. Mm -hmm. And Simmelweis's theory was that the sight of this priest and the sound of that bell ringing would elicit so much fear in all of the other patients because they knew now right, that someone had that died yeah. that they would then also become sick out of fear and develop purple fever and die. Okay. So he had the priest like walk a different path and not ring the bell. <laughs> and that fixed it. And no. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Sawbones. You got to be careful with bells, folks. That's what I keep saying. You know, it's just like Animal Crossing. You, you got to be careful with your bells. Right. This has nothing to do with Animal Crossing. And Fair. also this did not help. Fair. So he did what anybody would do in this situation. He was stymied. He was exhausted. He was upset. So he took a vacation. Oh, okay, good. Chill. So around March 2nd of 1847, Semmelweis heads off to Venice to clear his head, to admire beautiful works of art, and think about things while, I guess, drifting down a canal in a gondola. You know, and I this is the time that we will do ads. And I think it's so, <laughs> it's so nice. No, I just want to hang a hat on it because it's so nice that people so rarely take act breaks in their own biographies you know what i mean it's not it's it's nice that someone has a natural and then he stopped for a while and you can too <laughs> take <laughs> a break take a break buy something don't go to venice right now or anywhere but do take a break do take a break in your home and let's go to the billing go, department yeah let's go <laughs> the medicines the medicines that escalate macabre for the mouth 
Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com slash sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right. Summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed, but we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat delicious meals right to your door, and not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is 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 part of my plan. Um, but they got, like, fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From, from, from a, a box? Pre-prepared, all I got in two minutes, I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. All right, Semmelweis is all rested up, Sid. He's feeling good, looking good. How is that relevant? (laughs) Well, he returned on March 20th. I don't know if the vacation is relevant. I just thought it was kind of a nice moment yeah. in the story. Because he, he while he was gone, unfortunately, one of his fellow physicians, a friend, a pathologist named uh, Jakob Koletska, had died. And when he came back, he was very upset by this news. And he, he wanted to find out, like, what exactly happened? You know, this was my, my dear friend. What, what had happened? Uh, and so what he found out is that uh, Koletska was doing an autopsy. And during the autopsy, a student, blaming it on those students. And some, you know, having been a medical student, everything gets blamed on us. Uh, but a student 
during the autopsy accidentally nicked the professor with a knife, uh, the same knife that he had been using to cut into the cadaver. Sounds fair to blame the student in this one. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, no, you know, it's the first time holding a knife. It was an accident. You know, I didn't get mad when, that one time when that resident jammed a needle into the side of my finger while we were putting in a chest tube. Yeah. I was not mad at him. No, I was. It was scary. Yeah. But it, I was not mad at him. It was an accident. He apologized. Uh, so anyway, Koletska, after this happened, after he got this cut, a couple days later, he got very sick. And basically, he developed a presentation very similar. Purple fever. To purple fever. Huh. Yes. And when he read this account of, of exactly what had happened, of how he got these fevers and all this inflammation and he developed a, a meningitis and inflammation of the meninges that cover the brain and spinal cord. And he developed a pericarditis of the sac that surrounds the heart, like all this inflammation all over his body. And it was kind of random and he seemed to be very sick in many different places at once. Um, and he, he began to, Semmelweis began to put it all together. This is like purple fever, mm. but why? Cause it, he obviously had not just given birth. Right. So what is it that what is causing it? Yeah. What what is the connection between this professor of pathology who has died and all of these patients who have recently given birth who have died? And uh, he began to theorize. He began to come up with this idea. What if there were some sort of what he called cadaverous particles Mm. that were on that knife that cut and then infected his friend and led to his death that were also making their way into these patients who were giving birth. Hmm. And how would those cadaverous particles get from the autopsy room to the delivery room? Well, there's a very obvious answer via the doctors and students who were performing the right. autopsies right. and performing the deliveries. I was about to say that, like, just one more <laughs> Well, and it made sense if you consider that at the second clinic, there were no doctors and students. That's where the midwives did the deliveries, and midwives did not do autopsies. Mm. Only the doctors and students did. It's not the midwives were washing their hands. It's just that no. they, they weren't doing autopsies. They weren't autopsies. doing autopsies. Oh, okay. So his idea, and see, and that's why the idea isn't, exactly right but the it gets you there it gets right? you there it gets you there <laughs> it gets you to a good idea so this is so basically these doctors would go perform these autopsies because like i said this was a point in history where there were many more of these being done they would go perform these autopsies and then when they would be called to like hey it's time for a delivery of patients come in they would just come straight from the morgue dirty bloody hands dirty bloody clothes because even at this point like the idea that you would be covered in some sort of like visible gore yeah was not a bad thing it says you're working right yes. like you want your mechanic to have <laughs> have oil on their hands because that means they're getting in there and doing carburetors that's stuff. exactly it it was it was a mark of your professional status of your skill of the that these is just just what this is what a doctor looks like we are bloody and gory and heroic and this is how we look and so they would come in that way to do the deliveries so in order to test this idea Simmelweis said okay well if we think there's some sort of particle 
And again, if you had pushed him on it, and when he eventually wrote about this stuff, he was kind of thinking it had something to do with the smell coming from these cadaverous particles. So again, we're sort of talking about miasma theory. This is not a germ that he necessarily understands, but something related to these particles on the hands are making people sick. So if we just wash our hands before we do a delivery, perhaps we could reduce the rate of purple fever. And uh, soap wasn't enough. He decided chlorine, which was known to be something that could clean things. But it was a solution of chlorine. It wasn't just pure chlorine. Right. Chlorine and water. So the solution of chlorine and water, you had to wash your hands in before you did a delivery. And he just instituted that since he was running the first clinic. Mm -hmm. He instituted it in all of the clinic and said, okay, everybody start washing your hands. And after he did this, the rate of death from purple fever dropped dramatically. In two months... He reported a zero death rate wow. from purple fever, uh, which was incredible at the time. You know, he was he they, they had really made a huge difference, a very obvious, clear cut, visible difference from these changes. Um, and at this point, he started pushing to if this, you know, if this is working great with our hands, why don't we start? Maybe we could start cleaning our surgical instruments, too. Sure. Why not? Let's why not? Whatever has blood on it. Let, let's go much. wild here. Yeah. yeah. Chlorine's and, cheap. And word started to spread uh, in France and in London. He would have, basically, Semmelweis did not like to go do lectures abroad. He didn't really like to do the public speaking thing. Um, He was totally happy with, like, his students or his colleagues, other people that he worked with, going and giving lectures sort of on his behalf and explaining what he did and talking them through the process and why they thought it worked and everything um, throughout Europe. And some of them, some people very quickly started to say, like, well, this is groundbreaking. They were, like, comparing him to, like, Edward Jenner. Like, Mm -hmm. this is going to be one of the greatest discoveries of of history, of medical history. You know, this is amazing. Um, But again, Semmelweis wasn't there to speak for himself. And he also, I think it's worth noting, didn't publish. So exactly what he thought was happening and the conclusions he was drawing, it was really left up to the interpretation of the people who were going and speaking on his behalf Mm. because he did not formally publish any results from this. He just didn't put it to paper. And through, it's almost like a game of telephone. Yeah. Through people just repeating what they heard he'd done and not having a definitive work to refer to, they began to get some misunderstanding. People had doubts. They had questions. And Simmelweis wasn't there to answer them. There wasn't even a document there to answer them. And so this doubt began to spread. And I think on Sawbones we have shown many times that just because somebody figures out a new truth about something especially a new scientific truth doesn't mm-hmm. mean that everyone else is ready to hear that truth and this unfortunately is what happened with Simmelweis's groundbreaking hand washing idea is that a lot of doctors and scientists began to push back against it um, for one there was some missing there's some misunderstanding of it by the time it got to the UK, they thought all Semmelweis was saying was this seems to be something contagious. And they said, well, we already know that it's something contagious because we'll see multiple patients in the same obstetrical word. Get it. Like right. we already knew that. What, are, what is this groundbreaking work? What are you even talking about? We don't even know what he's trying to tell us to do. Why does he think maybe he should come up here and study for a bit and then he'll see what we're already on to. Um, and then the other thing is that if it if you did understand it and the implications of it, it made doctors look really bad. Yeah. 
Well, and and, and <clears throat> not just bad, but like from an optics perspective, but like literally, res- who wants to accept the truth that they've been responsible for all these deaths over the years, unintentionally, but still, I mean, nobody wants to think that that's the case. That's and that's exactly the what they said. They we don't want to accept that we're responsible for the deaths of all these patients. We were trying to do good. We were yeah. trying to learn as we are tasked in doing, learn about humans and save their lives. And also we're doctors, we're clean. A lot of them took like a personal offense. Like I am a, I am a gentleman. <laughs> How dare you suggest that I would not be clean. Right. Uh, and also all the stuff about looking cool and bloody and, and all sure, that stuff. A bit. Um, so at this point there was a lot of political turmoil in Vienna and by 1849, he actually was let go from his position. His contract wasn't renewed, so to speak. And yeah. in part, it was probably because of these ideas that he was pushing and his superiors really weren't necessarily buying into. In part, it, there were just other political things happening. Um, but one way or another, he returned to his home in Budapest and worked at a hospital there. And when he arrived, again, similarly, the rate of purple fever was very high. There was a lot of death due to that. He employed these same methods at this hospital and again saw an amazing reduction in the rate of, of you know, childbed fever. However, it was in basically obscurity at this point because nobody was paying attention to him. He, right. had, he had sort of been discredited on, on a large stage. The uh, doctor who took his position in Vienna, who would kind of be his like lifetime like enemy, his... um nemesis so to speak carl braun uh basically took over in vienna at the obstetrical clinic and said uh all of this is ridiculous um there no there are no cadaverous particles there is no similar infection all of these patients have different things going on and he came up with a different reason for every person who got sick um but he also continued the chlorine washings. Yeah, just go ahead. Hey, we already bought all this chlorine. Let's just go ahead and, yeah, you never know. Which was, what it ended up doing is he said everything like he thought was wrong, and here's what's really right, and just believe me, but the mortality rate stayed very low because he was continuing with the washings. So everybody just thought, but people didn't know that part. Right. So they thought, right. oh, well, Semmelweis was wrong. Bronze are right. right. Um. Eventually, Simmelweis did publish, but it was so far after all of these conversations had been happening. He published a couple smaller works in 1856 and 1858, and it wasn't until 1861 that he finally published like his master work describing everything that he did and why it worked and all of his numbers. Here were the stats before. Here were the stats after. I mean, all of this probably would have been a lot more impactful if it had been published at the time, but by the time he did, it was kind of like everybody had already made their minds up about him. Um, there were a lot more works denouncing him by that point than than he could publish to fight back against it. Um, and he spent his last few years becoming increasingly erratic at this point uh, after 1861 when he published this. And even when he published this, it should be noted that a lot of like rigorous scientists read it and said like well this is not exactly written like a scientist like it seems kind of mm-hmm. angry and combative and emotional and it's not just purely like here's what i did and here are the numbers and here are my right, very right. you know scientific conclusions um it was less academic and, and a lot more emotional at this point because he was so frustrated 
um, from from not being believed. And he began to, I have a quote, he began to write these letters to uh, obstetricians who were practicing in different places to try to get them to do what he was doing. It was with this very, you know, good, benevolent motivation. But he wrote letters to people with things like, <laughs> you, air professor, have been a partner in this massacre. <laughs> and he wrote to somebody else, uh, should you, without having disproved my doctrine, continue to train your pupils against it, I declare before God and the world that you are a murderer <laughs> and the history of childbed fever would not be unjust to you if it memorialized you as a medical Nero. Oh, jeez. So he wrote a lot of letters like this. A little more, maybe perhaps some advice, a little more honey instead of the vinegar <laughs> if we want to catch some flies. Uh, furious letters. He be, his And like I said, the his, his wife noted that his behavior became very different. Uh, he was noted to be out, seen out on the town uh, with with other women who were not his wife. He began drinking a lot more. Um, and there's been a lot of debate as to exactly what was going on. Was it just complete overwrought frustration, you know, yeah. stress? I, I tried to save the world and the world is too stupid to see it and I just can't anymore was it some form of dementia it's been debate would have been early onset it would have been like 47 so maybe early onset but was it some form of dementia was it a psychiatric condition nobody's really sure what exactly clearly things started to to take a turn at yeah. this point in his life and as a result he was actually another physician committed him to a psychiatric facility mm. um and when he after he arrived there from the mistreatment that he received. He died two weeks later, probably mm. from a uh, bacteremia, a blood infection, an mm. infection in his blood, very similar to the purpural fever that he had been working so hard to eradicate. Um, and the doctor that took over for him in Budapest at that hospital stopped all the hand washing and the mortality rate from purpural fever climbed again, Whew. which you would have thought would have showed people something. Um, but it really, it wasn't, it wasn't until, and we've talked about them on the show before, but Pasteur came along with the germ theory of disease and Lister introduced the idea of, of antiseptic technique, um, that reinforced all of these principles and basically proved that Semmelweis was right. He didn't know he was right. He didn't know why he was right, mm -hmm. but he was right. Um, and his legacy, you know, stands today in the sense that he has, a university, hospitals, a museum named after him. He has, there was a coin. There was a stamp. Uh, this recent Google Doodle. There's a planet, a minor planet named after Semmelweis. There have been plays. There have been books. There have been movies. There have been lots written and, and said and celebrated about Semmelweis as an important uh, historical figure. Of course, it is unfortunate that he was not given that sure. due in his time. And all the lives that could have been saved had his work been recognized when he first did it, you mm -hmm. know, how many people suffered and didn't need to if everybody had started washing their hands back then. You know, I'm kind of struggling with this one, Sid. Um, is there is there more to the, before I go? I was just going to say, our resi the, there's also something called the Semmelweis reflex. And I think it's important, may, maybe not so much in the context of the this exact moment in medical history and everything that's going on, but just for our show, we tend to be very resistant 
to new ideas, especially new scientific ideas that challenge a deeply held like societal or cultural norm, something that that really pushes against the status quo, no matter how much truth, evidence, anything, no matter how much proof is behind it, when it's introduced, we tend to immediately discredit, discount, refute it. Um, and that is called the Semmelweis reflex in, in his in his honor. I'm struggling with this one, Sid, because, I mean, obviously, I, I, I have... I don't have all the facts. I, I have 35 minutes of history of similar vice. So I don't want to make any broad sweeping judgments, but it seems to me that most of the figures that we talk about who have had a massive impact and, and have made big changes, once they have that breakthrough, they are singularly focused on that. And they are, are sort of singularly focused on changing minds and spreading the word about that and like letting people know. And I, there's a part of me that's really struggling with this because I feel like if you make a discovery like he made, you owe it to humanity in a sense to make that your primary, like spreading the word about that, changing minds about that. Like you owe it to the species to like make that your focus to like document and get the word out and get facts out and publish. And you know, all that stuff you said he held off on doing cause he didn't like, you know, that wasn't his thing. Like, it's hard to say. I mean, it, it's hard to reach back into history and really understand someone's like character and motivations, yeah. why they did or didn't do anything. Uh, I would say that, you know, sometimes people who make these groundbreaking discoveries aren't aren't like naturally suited to be the spokesperson for them. Mm-hmm. I, I would say we see that throughout history. They're just not they're not public speakers. Not everybody likes to speak in public. Not everybody likes to. I hate Right. I hate publishing. <laughs> I, I hate having to like do case reports and studies and stuff. That's just never been my interest or skill set. It would be I would hope that I would be able to rise to the occasion where I ever to uncover something so groundbreaking as this. But it would be it's not something I I seek out. Um, so I, I mean, that's part of it. But I mean, the other thing is, even if he had done it all, I, I think that we see all that now and it's important to understand all that. But even if he had done it all, quote unquote, perfectly. Yeah. Even if he had published it all at that moment, even if he had been an amazing public speaker who had traveled all over Europe and and done all the big talks and presented all of his numbers for everyone to see, even if he had, I don't know if everybody was ready for it. I mean, the implications were really there were people who did accept his work. It was actually more accepted in Germany. That was one place where they they started to believe that long before other places yeah. throughout Europe would would adopt these principles. Um, and as some professors began to understand what it meant and really like ascribe to that way of looking at things, uh, one in particular even uh, actually died by suicide because they felt so horrible after they realized what they had been responsible for early in their career. I mean, yeah. it's a huge yeah. thing. And I think that's part of it that we're not part of it is like you don't like to change your idea of I know how things work and it's scary if I didn't. But the other part is how many people have I harmed? Sure. And not just people like someone who's just given birth. Right, right, right. I mean, that's just such a it's such a vulnerable, raw time. It's to, not what you get in the biz for. No. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So, I, I mean, I think it's easy to sit back and say, well, if you'd have published, you know, maybe. But. Woody, would uh, we? I don't know. All I don't, I'm saying humans is that are, we don't like 
when ideas challenge us like this and hand washing challenged us in a way that all I'm saying we is this, that if I'm making a simple statement that if I had made this discovery, everyone would have started washing their hands instantly <laughs> and I wouldn't have shut up about it and I would have fixed, I would have saved a lot of lives. I guess well, if it had been me, I would have saved a lot of lives. Because you would have done 30 or 40 podcasts about Planet, it. Planet Justin <laughs> would be out there. You'd have Justin on a stamp, Justin on a coin. It'd be something else. So, so we wash our hands now. Thanks to Ignaz Semmelweis. And Justin Thank McElroy, you, in a sense. Dr. Semmelweis. If we, you think about it. We all know to wash our hands. I hope you're all washing your hands a lot. 20 seconds. Uh, do you have a favorite song to wash your hands to? No, Justin? Sydney, but I'd like you to share yours. Yeah, we already talked about mine. It's All Star. Yes. That's I, true. I still do that one every time. Is that what you do every time? Every time. What's yours? <laughs> I made up a song for Charlie and Cooper. <laughs> sing your song. Are, are you really? You do it with them all the time. You I can know. just sing your song. Okay. Oh, my daughters, Charlie and Cooper. You gotta understand right now, more than ever. You gotta wash your hands. Come on and wash your hands. You gotta wash your hands. <laughs> That's about twenty seconds. It's, it's like twenty two, give or take, but it's it's a, f- a it's couple extra enough. for the Lord. It's, it's a couple extra, a couple extra to for make the Lord. it work. Uh, thank you so much for listening to our program. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. Thanks to the taxpayers for the use of their song "Medicines" as the intro and outro of our program. Hey, uh, you know what? Uh, there's a lot of local bookstores that are doing like shipping and stuff. What better? What better time when you got a little free time to call them? See if they can get you a copy of the Sawbones yeah, book. Curl up in the safety of your own home with a good book. Uh, that is going to do it for us for this week. So until next time, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.